food lovers out there. You're listening to On the Menu with Ann and Peter Haig. And today we're going to bring you some more interesting specialty products that you ought to know about. Um, the general theme is actually, according to uh, Peter, uh, the best is West. But I was going to throw in also uh, Go West, Young Man. And um, we're going to start with somebody who did just that. Uh, Eric Haberly um, moved from um, New York to California and got involved with establishing his own jam company called We Love Jam, and he's going to tell us all about that. Okay, so we're finally talking to Eric Haberly. <laughs> You're a tough guy to get a hold of. You know? Well, um, unfortunately, this was my morning where I was trying to get caught up with stuff on the computer, and I lost track of time, so I'm sorry. Okay, anyhow, um, you have um, a, a, a good company called We Love Jam. Uh, you're California-based. Tell us specifically where you're based. In San Francisco. Right. Favorite city, as everybody's favorite city. Um, now, you, you're understaffed. We know that because it used to be a, a, a company of two people, and you're, you're now just yourself, one, right? Yeah, I had a helper, and then, um, well, everybody knows what's happening with the labor <laughs> situation yeah, <no>. right now. <laughs> and um, she wasn't exactly the most quality control-oriented person, so there was a lot of mistakes. So when she asked for a huge pay rates, I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to do it all by myself. <laughs> <laughs> and that proved to be extraordinarily unsuccessful. <laughs> no, it's it's just slower. <laughs> <laughs> Listeners, you don't get the inside joke. The inside joke is it's been fairly difficult to get Eric on the telephone. Yeah, I know. It's yeah. It's, I, but we, yeah, but we, it but we did it. We did it. We per- yes. We persevered. Perseverance is a good thing to have. So now, Eric, um, you've been, your company's been on our radar for a long time because you have a fairly interesting backstory. Um, uh, how you you claimed that you said the samples in, in 2011, but I don't recall. We never did an interview, but you've been around a while then. When did this company start? Well, it's kind of an interesting story. I was uh, I worked in tech for a while, and I got a disability from all the computer work, so I took some time off when I left the corporate world. And I decided I wanted to start my own business. And mm-hmm. I tried all kinds of things. And uh, one of the things I was going to do was like an organic fruit-infused uh, alcoholic beverage. And when it proved to be too expensive to outsource, you know, and I didn't want to build my own distillery, I kind of just fell into teaching part-time. And um, it was during that time that I met um, my partner, who happened to have an old apricot tree in his backyard. And when I first went in the backyard, it was end of June and there was, the tree was laden with fruit. And I grew up on the East Coast. Most people don't have apricot trees. No, we don't have apricot trees. I was like, oh, my God, look at all that fruit. What are you going to do with it? And he goes, oh, my mom eats some of it, but most of it just falls on the ground or gets eaten by the squirrels. Uh-huh. And I had a friend who, you know, had uh, – a 
kind of a brother-in-law who sent us some jars of jam, and um, and he made these cute little labels, uh, and I was and that kind of popped into my head. I'm like, oh, let's just make jam from this. I think I made jam when I was a kid with some you know blackberries I picked you know like a hundred years ago. So. I don't know how the idea came to me, but we just picked all this fruit and we lugged it up to San Francisco, you know, where we lived because, you know, his mom was in Santa Clara, which apparently was the area that all the apricots were grown for America. It was just... Yeah, tons, I mean, tons, it used to be farms. a big thing, a big industry, and I guess he said it's not anymore. Yeah, most of them were canned or they were dried. And I had dried. a customer when I started this business who was in her 90s. She was a retired nurse. And she lived down there, and she said when she was a little girl, you know, like a teenager, she said you could drive up and down 101, which was, you know, the big freeway that kind of went through that area. And she said there were so many apricot orchards, you could smell the fruit in the air while you were driving a car on the freeway. She said there were just farms everywhere. And, you know, when the kind of tech industry became popular like in the 70s and in the 80s. You know, a lot of these farmers were, you know, they got smart, you know. They don't make a lot of money. They just sold their land to, you know, housing developments and, you know, industrial parks. And long story short, uh, my partner's mom's house in Santa Clara, we found out, used to be an apricot orchard. And what they used to do when they would convert the orchards to housing developments is they would leave one tree in each backyard, of really? the new house. Yes. So the tree that was the original tree that, you know, I saw that fruit from probably was dating back to the 1930s or something like that because they can live almost 100 years old if they're, you know, oh, well really? cared for. And so it was this old tree, and we found out that it was a Blenheim variety, you know. and uh, Perfect. But basically how the company started is that, you know, this was just a summer hobby. We were just pick the fruit and we make like, I don't know, like 30, 40 jars. And then we give them away and everyone really liked it. And I was teaching journalism at the time and we were doing press releases. So let me just do like a little press release for fun about this jam and send it out to some food magazines. And um, we, I sent one to Savour and one to Food and Wine magazine. I found out later that an editor at Savour was carrying around that jar in her purse and giving people samples of it. <laughs> but... For whatever reason, they didn't write about us, but Food and Wine, six months after I sent the jar and I had completely forgotten about it, uh, I came home from, you know, teaching and there was a voicemail, you know, back in the day when we still had landlines. And, uh, <laughs> and it was like, this is Food and Wine. We got your jar jam. Thank you so much. But, you know, we plan everything six months in advance and we, were, we weren't working on, you know, our jam stuff. But now we want to write about you guys, you know, call us back. And so I called them back and they wrote this little blurb and we just got so much, you know, emails from people that it was just unbelievable. So I quit teaching and I started the jam business. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I mean, the, hold, on, hold on a second. I'm, yeah, in, I'm intrigued by the variety. I mean, why is a Blenheim apricot a Blenheim apricot? Well, apparently, it's a very delicious apricot, but it's very fragile, which explains why that variety was grown so widely in the Silicon Valley area. But it was not sold fresh to supermarkets. It was either canned or dried because of the perishability. And also yeah. the picking season, it, they only picked them for about a week or two. So 
you know, when we started buying, you know, from a farm, which is one of the last farms left, which is called Van Dyke Ranch in Gilroy, and it's, you know, a third-generation ranch. It's been organic since the 80s. Uh, the owner, Peter Now, is just a wonderful, wonderful guy. And, you know, when we started buying, it was like, oh, my God. You know, he's like, we're only picking this week, and that's it. <laughs> and uh-huh. I would have to order, and, you know, we – would get like I, I, I'm not kidding. We would be buying like you know six, seven thousand pounds of these apricots, and we would have to process them by hand, by hand within you know like a week or two. You know they they only stay like three weeks in the refrigerator, and they start getting moldy. So there's this huge rush. They would pick them all. Sometimes, luckily, they could pick some one week and another week, and it would give us some time. But it was just. It was just a huge, horrible nightmare, you know, trying to get all this stuff converted into jam in a short period of time. No, no, I was one, I was wondering if there was any connection to to Blenheim, which is the site well, it, of Blenheim it is Palace, of a beautiful yeah. palace in the it, south yes. of England, not not too far from Oxford, and which there is, there is which some is, connection, and I, I okay. used to know it. I guess anybody can you know search online, but there is some kind of sure. connection, I believe. And that is the the premier um, apricot um, in in the UK is Blenheim, and and there has to be a connection to the palace. Uh, yeah, palace. I, I think I read at one time there is. And yeah, I think there's so too. some other old varieties. There's some other old varieties that were also grown, but the the Blenheim just was, I think, the most popular. And there's small fruits also, and that's the other problem. That's the problem. <laughs> They're small, and sometimes, you know, if it's not a good year, I mean, literally, they're the size of like a walnut. <laughs> yeah, well, that's what happens to my Asian pears, my Asian pear tree. If you don't, um, you don't um, thin the blossoms, that's what you get, and we never remember to thin the blossoms. So we have a lot of these yeah. pear marbles. So, yeah, but the, well, the fragility of the uh, apricots is, is to be noted because. We interviewed somebody who was involved with the industry that developed the plumcot, which was mm-hmm. trying to get a, a, away from that fragility issue. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and uh, and it's fraught with issues. I mean, it's you know, uh, thievery, deception, rotting stuff. I mean, it's just it, it's a totally useless um, hybrid. The fruit. Why don't we give Eric the, the backstory of, of Blenheim Palace? To, are you, are so you that, look it up? So why would he want up. to know? I, I, think it's, I think it's fascinating because the, the, the palace, which is near Oxford, was, was built with money given by Parliament and, and land given by the Crown of England. Because the general who had had a very successful 30 years war in Europe, John Churchill, was so enamored of the population and the king that, that this was his prize. And, and curiously enough, another piece of ridiculous trivia, Winston, Winston Churchill, Churchill grew up there, right? He, he, was actually, he was born there because his mother was staying there at the time that she gave birth. It turned out that uh, there was a comment I read somewhere from him that said he was not one of the rich Churchills, he was one of the poor Churchills. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, now now you know the story. You can can tell it in bars and make lots of money. 
<laughs> so no, I mean, you you want to keep this company small. You don't want to grow it um, for quality control reasons. Uh, yeah, explain to us what your mission is with this with these jams. First of all, well, you know, we're talking about the apricot because that's the, the the biggie. Everybody's in love with the apricot. But you make yeah. how many other um, jams? Oh, my God, it's so many, maybe 30, 40 products now. It's just, it's you know, it's snowballed because, you know, people are always asking for something new. And, like, that first summer when we made it, I had to rent a commercial kitchen, which is in an old shipyard in San Francisco, that we found out later is like a toxic waste dump. So as soon as I found that out, I'm like, you can't be here. <laughs> you have a lot of good luck, don't you? <laughs> it's, it's a super fun site. And so... Um, <laughs> So as soon as I found out, I'm like, and also it's really hard because it's mostly used by caterers. So we were told we could only go in after 10 o'clock at night. So that first summer, you know, that we made things commercially, after all, you know, the requests, we would have to go in at 10 o'clock at night and we'd have to work until 6 in the morning. (laughs) And it it was just like it wasn't going to work. So that's, you know, where, you know, I took a loan against my house and I sold all my stock and I just built a factory, which cost you know, God only knows how much. So we've been in there since 2008 because the company was started in 2007. And um, so I have my own facility. I, you know, have all the equipment. I custom designed and made everything all myself. It was, uh, took like five years to get it finished. But, uh, but just, you know, as a business, you know, you constantly have to have other products because there were a few years where there was almost no apricots. Uh Uh, I think it was in the third or fourth year, you know, uh, the, uh, Peter Van Dyke, he said, there's no fruit. And we had to get it from an orchard next to his for, who for some reason had fruit. So that made it really clear, like, you just can't have one product and run a company. Right. You know, you have to have a backup. And so over the years, just out of my own boredom of wanting, you know, not wanting to do the same thing over and over again, we have all these different products. Some, we have the fruit frozen, and we can make it all year long, which makes it easier. Some is very seasonal, like we just finished the kumquats, in uh, February. Oh, you have kumquat jam. We do three kinds. We do three kinds of marmalade, but we don't use the traditional, you know, Seville oranges or you know anything like that. I use kumquat. And, I love uh, kumquats. Yeah, and they're really. We nice had a kumquat tree in, in in our yard in Australia, and I'm the only one that ate them. Really? Yeah, I mean they're not really? real popular. I don't think. Yeah, well, they have a lot of seeds in them. That's the problem. <laughs> yeah. Used to chew. Eric, she used to pick them right off the tree and eat them right off the tree. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, have, a, I have a tree myself. People and thought, they're, they're people quite thought it was rather savage. <laughs> but the funny thing is most people don't know what kumquats are. I mean, when I moved I to San Francisco, when I moved here, I was 24 years old. I grew up in the East Coast, and I went to a friend's house here in San Francisco, and she had this bowl of these little yellow things. And I'm like, what are those? And she goes, you don't know what kumquats are? I never had one, never heard, saw one, and when she said that the rind was sweet, that you could eat the rind, I was just so amazed. <laughs> oh, I love them. I absolutely adore them. I haven't had one in years. Yeah. I'll have to send you a jar. I think I have like four jars left. I just was answering an email <laughs> from a customer who ordered some. She wanted some more. I'm just like, well, we've got – so we, what we do is we do a pure kumquat marmalade. It's usually uh, either a fukushu or a uh, – or a um, 
Oh, God, I, I can't even think straight now. The fukushu is a Japanese variety that we use. It's pear-shaped, and it's really, really delicious. But those were, those, the past two years have been wiped out by weather. And yeah. so we've had to use either a seedless variety of a nigami, which is called a Nordman, or we use a nigami. So we do a pure kumquat marmalade, and then we do a 50-50 blend of kumquats and apricots, which is really nice. Oh, and then I do nice. a lime quad. And lime quad is a cross between a kumquat and a lime. So if you like key lime pie, it's fantastic. Oh, you know? really? Those are interesting. Interesting. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, I don't, what are the, how many people actually work, like, in the production? Well, basically, when my former employee took a temporary job at UPS, you know, she thought she was going to be able to, like, kind of work for me and work for UPS. And that didn't work because I guess UPS needed her so much. And so I was basically, you know, alone. And that's, I can't really operate the equipment because there's two pieces of equipment. There's a machine that I bought that kind of like I dumped the jam in and it's like, you know, dispenses the jam into the jars. You know, you have to stand there and hold a jar under it. And then right next to it, there's a little machine that screws the cap on. But it's, you have to operate it. It's not automatic. <laughs> and so it takes two people and I can't so believe when you're doing it, it by yourself, you do this, Eric. I it mean, takes forever. <laughs> so you're a little nuts, you know that. Well, <laughs> I didn't have okay. I put in ad in Craigslist, which is what I've been using all these years, you know. And I have you know people I know, you know. I, I've worked with like this place called New Door Ventures, where they take at-risk kids and they kind of place them in jobs. I, I work with them. Um, I've had all kinds of, my former students have helped me. So I've, I've always had a huge group of people. And this was the first time that I couldn't find, and everyone was either in school or they're working or they're busy. Yeah. And Craigslist yielded two responses. And one person didn't want to send me their resume. And the other person worked for one day and he worked graveyard shift. And after one day, he went through a red light. He was so tired and nearly was, you know, killed in a car accident he goes i can't work two jobs so after that i just i just gave up and luckily i have a helper now and things are back to normal like i i mean literally i had wholesale orders on my desk last week going back to december like these are small small little shops i mean we have distributors and they get priority because you know that keeps the stuff on the shelves of whole food so that's where the money is but these little cheese shops here and there get around the country who order like you know a hundred dollars like I couldn't be bothered because I just couldn't make enough, you know. Uh-huh. So finally, they're getting their jam. You know, I feel terrible. Oh my! No, well, so. you know, I, just, I can't figure out how you can run all this. To tell you the truth, and, and not to even mention the fact that, um, I mean, I, I know restaurants that have to cut their days of service and hours of service. Um, they can't not just get just not get servers. They can't even get cooks. So yeah, many people are leaving the industry, and it's just, it's yeah. incredible. Yeah, I so, know a guy who... Go ahead. Oh, go ahead. No, I mean, that's okay. Go ahead. You oh, met a I guy? Say, I, I met a fellow when I was um, at, like, a restaurant supply place where I buy some stuff, and he said he's owned the same restaurant in San Francisco for 30 years. And he says he has three employees that have worked for over 20 years for him. For him. But he said, you know, it's a big restaurant and he needs a lot of employees. And he said, he goes, he can't find help. And he said, this is the first time in like 20 years that he's actually cooking. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, really? I, I just, he's doing everything. And he, you know, he's, he just, he said, he goes, I don't think it's going to get any better. You know? Well, people are leaving the industry, period. 
you know, that's the Well, problem. all the restaurants were shut down. Everyone found another job. They went to construction. They went to UPS. Like, they're not going to go back to those jobs. It's, they're too no. scared it might happen again, you know. Right. It's, it's tough but the good news, the, the good yeah. news is owning a food business like mine, because when COVID, when the lockdown happened, like almost two years ago, my online sales and from the food delivery places just skyrocketed. Oh, yeah. So it was, my business was just, it went crazy. And that has pretty much, I mean, things have settled down a little bit, but I think a lot of people before the pandemic were hesitant about buying food stuff online. You know, there was a huge yeah. swath of the, you know, the population who didn't buy, you know, stuff online, either because they never did it before or they didn't want to pay shipping because, you know, we charge for shipping. Right. I'm not Amazon. And all these people were buying online and they got used to it. And so our online sales, we've, we started as an online business originally. We were only selling online. And then we were approached by Whole Foods and, you know, a lot of other. So, you know, we sell the stores and we have distributors. But online has always been, you know, a stable income but the pandemic it just went through the roof and so i think and and that hasn't settled down a lot more people are used to it now you know yeah well this is we we had to um kind of uh, skew our content uh, more to to that kind of thing online food delivery and ordering and and producers and so forth because um what we used to cover was go on i mean like the the, uh, for it's been almost three years now. I mean, they, they haven't had any of these big culinary events, these awards programs. Um, they canceled the Gastronomica. They ga- canceled the World's 50 Best. They canceled the Beards. Um, you know, and it goes on and on like that. And then the, 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 we used to go cover the chefs of the given city, and you don't even know who's open or closed anymore. It's just it's yeah. incredible. So, yeah, um, yeah, I think it's a major market shift, marketing shift, too. And I think it's here to stay. Yeah, so. I almost bought a bar before, like, when I left the corporate world, uh, I almost bought a bar in the Castro here in San Francisco. It had a full liquor license. It was turnkey. You know, the owner just wanted to do something else. And I remember talking to a friend of mine who's an attorney, and he said, Never, ever buy, he said, if you have a choice, he said, there's two kinds of businesses. There's knowledge-based businesses and there's location-based businesses. So if you're like a dry cleaner or you own a bar, that's a location-based. If you're like an architect or a lawyer, you're knowledge-based. You can go anywhere. He said, if you have a choice to have a job, it should always be a knowledge-based job because, you know, something goes wrong or you, you lose your rent, you know, you're screwed. And so he talked me out of buying the bar. But, you know, when I started the We Love Jam, you know, it was tough in the beginning. I wasn't really making that much money. And, you know, I was used to making a lot more with a corporate job. And, like, I was always late on my mortgage. It was always, you know, a headache. And I was like, oh, I should have bought that bar. (laughs) (laughs) But when the pandemic hit and all the bars shut down, I'm like, oh, my God, thank God I didn't open a bar. (laughs) Yeah, no, 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 it was bad news. I mean, I – Fortunately, I learned my lesson really early on. Um, I was really young when I, I owned a restaurant in Philadelphia, and uh, my exposure there was enough to put me off ever ever even considering getting into that business again. <laughs> you oh, know, yeah, I was, I, it, yeah. It's awful. I mean, it's just it's, that's part of the reason why 
the industry's lost so many workers. I mean, it's, it's really a, a nasty business. Well, there's such a high turnover. I mean, when I was a, the first job I ever had in my life, I was hired as a um, host and a waiter at a really busy restaurant on Nantucket. I was 13 years old. I wasn't even I old was. enough to work. And it was an eye-opener. It was a busy restaurant. The owner, <laughs> the owner's parents had owned this restaurant for like you know a long, long time. It's an established restaurant. And for, I, this is what they told me. The, the owner's parents wanted to retire. They didn't want to work. And their son, who had gone to MIT but had had a nervous breakdown and was institutionalized, came out of the mental hospital and came to run the restaurant. Oh, God. <laughs> he was completely insane. And, but, he, you know, he would run into the restaurant and yell, everyone's fired, you know, in the middle of brunch, <laughs> and fire every waiter, every busboy. And he'd done, he did this, like, on a monthly basis. So there was always, you know, jobs opening, and that's how I got the job. <laughs> and I just saw, how, you know, he would sleep on this sack of potatoes, in the basement, you know, in his uniform. He, he just was working all the time, and he was smoking these now cigarettes, and he was, he was a nervous wreck, and obviously he had mental issues, but I was <laughs> like, I would never want to own a restaurant, and then I worked at many other restaurants after that, and it was all the owners were like alcoholics, they were drinking, the people were always quitting. I was like, why would you ever want to own a restaurant? <laughs> yeah, I, well, so. of course... Some of our best friends were uh, restaurateurs when we were doing more of that sort of thing. And um, half of them are almost jailed as sexual predators. (laughs) I know. Well, the thing is, I think the people who go, I mean, I'm obviously I'm in the same category, but who in their right mind would start like a food business, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, But I think it's people, people go into this because they like a challenge, you know, and, I well, they like the, they like food. I mean, the people nuts about Excitement. food. Yeah, I think it's rewarding because you know, feeding people, seeing people eat a meal, or hearing feedback that they like a jar jam. I mean, at the end of the day, it is very, very rewarding. But it's all the headaches that go on. Like most people don't realize that. You know, who are just ordering oh, from my website, or they're going into a restaurant. They have no idea, like the amount of work that goes into it. And the, the people who aren't or have never been in the industry don't understand. But if uh, your cleaner doesn't show up, you're the one that mops the bathroom floors. <laughs> yeah, the toilet overflows. You're the one who's in there with the plunger. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, now, uh, let's ask a, a question. Why are your products so superior? I mean, there, you know there's a lot of competition in, in the um, preserve, uh, conserve, uh, um, uh, you know, um, jam and jelly category. So why why is your jam so superior? Well, you know, I think it's I really owe it to my mom and my dad because when I was growing up as a kid, both my mom and dad were really, really into food. And, you know, my mom's the kind of woman, this is going back into the, you know, early 70s, you know, because I'm 55. She would bake her own bread. She would, like, make her own quince jelly. She would um, make her own peanut. I mean, and there was no junk food allowed in the house. You know, know, once a year for my birthday, I could have, like, a Coke. Um, My dad was Swiss, and he was a real food snob, you know, so we had to eat French food, and we were always going out to these 
fancy restaurants in New York City. So I grew up, I think, exposed to a lot of stuff. And my dad and mom were really, really picky about food. So I think I got a really good education through them. And I also think I just have a really good sense of taste. And oh, I've always liked cooking. You know, my mom taught me to cook. You know, I used to go in the kitchen when I was a little boy, and she would give me things to do. So I just liked it. It's funny, my brother, who's two years younger, had no interest in food or cooking. Uh-huh. And um, so I think it's just it's a natural inclination, like kind of, kind of like a talent, and I have a good sense of taste and I think that's all that I can say, you know. Well, I mean, I, I can say that your product is excellent. And um, uh, so uh, let's, you've talked a little bit about where you can get it. Um, how about your, your website? Can we give that to our, I want to particularly point out that, that there is a, um, another company, I think in New Zealand, <laughs> called, we love jam, and it has nothing whatsoever to do with food or jam or this company at all. It's, it's I yeah, think, a music on you. Yeah, yeah, they're a music studio. And, I mean, I, when I started the business, you know, when I was on that phone call with Food & Wine the first time, um, you know, they asked, because, you know, we only made a little jars, you know, they said, how much do you make? I'm like, we make 100 jars. And so when the little blurb came out, it said waiting was jam. And they said, like in the magazine, there's only 100 jars. And so they asked how I was going to sell it. I'm like, well, it'll be a website. And they're like, okay, what's the website? I'm like, well, I, I have to make it. I don't even know what it is. So I was just thinking, and it's because I was doing this other business before with the alcohol and the fruits. I, I had already had some experience. And, you know, I just thought, oh, we love jam. That's a good Let me see if this is available. Because, you know, whenever you're looking for a domain, everything you can think of is always, you know, taken. And that was the first thing that popped into my head. It was available. I'm like, well, this is meant to be. So, uh, but about a year after the business started, I got an email from this We Love Jam place in either New Zealand or Australia. And they're like, we would like to buy the domain from you because we have the same name. I'm like, tough luck. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, okay, so but, listeners, when you're looking it up, make sure that it, it's a place that sells jam and it's American and it's in San Francisco and it has well, nothing to do with jam, music. The welovejam.com is our domain. And okay. if you type in We Love Jam, we're all over the place. But it's welovejam.com. I think there's music studio, God bless them, they have their own domain that's a little bit different. And, yeah, it's in there, yeah. Yeah, so, whatever. Well, but, I'm so um, glad we finally got to catch up with you, Eric, and we love your product. So, well, thank you uh, for calling, you know. Yeah, good luck with your staffing. Yeah, I just need it out of the jar. So send more jars. <laughs> I'll send you some of the marmalade. Yeah, I, 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 I want a kumquat tree again, to tell you the truth. I'd love to have one of those in my backyard. Here's an interesting new angle for you. This, this, this is the this is the way that Australians eat their jam, or marmalade. It's called you. First, first of all, you get a jar of what's called marmite or vegemite, depending on what Disgusting country you're in. Disgusting stuff. And oh, you, I hate that build stuff. A, yeah. you build <laughs> Me a, too. You build a moat. And then, and then in the center of the moat, you put your marmalade, and then you eat it. <laughs> Disgusting. Hmm, interesting. <laughs> but, but it, well, it's, a one, it's a wonderful bittersweet combination that only the well, I had a really customer. Like. I had a customer who told me he was also from Australia, 
Uh-huh. And he went to boarding school, and he said they made toast in Australia a very strange way in the boarding school. They would toast the bread, uh-huh. and then very dexterously they would slice the bread in half. So one half was the toasted part, and one half was the inside, the soft part. And that's how they ate their toast. I I'm like, I never, never heard that. that before. Well, they probably, they, they probably put some Vegemite and marmalade in there as well. Yeah. I'm sure they did. Well, good talking to you, Eric, and lots of luck to you. Continued success, and, um, and you're a delight. I'm, I'm so glad that we finally got to talk to you. Okay, thank you so much. Goodbye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Even Eric moved. He didn't move quite as far as our next guest, the Sings, um, who moved from India to the U.S. West Coast, and it made a wonderful assimilated uh, combination of everything that came to be known as Khalsa Salsa. Uh, we loved the product so much we hated it to see it end. Yes, well, we're, we're talking to um, Sukhdev and Rippy Singh about a product that we've become quite crazy about called Khalsa Salsa. And it's it's rather unusual. Um, I think that before launching into what it is, uh, could you tell us just a little bit about your background and and how you got to Oregon, which is where you operate from? Um, So my background is um, until very recently, I was a a manufacturing engineer in a high-tech company here in Portland. Uh And... uh, uh, I have a business degree, but I ended up in engineering, and now I ended up making salsa. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, now, so, um, this, and this I am. Just, oh, go ahead. Yeah, I, I am health physicist by profession, and I have worked in radiation safety world in hospitals and universities. Oh. Wow. Uh, so yeah, my background is also <laughs> quite uh, uh, different. different from making salsas. Okay, well, now, explain how you suddenly became, well, you became aware once you were in um, Oregon of all kinds of different um, melting pots of of cuisines, and coming from India, you undoubtedly had an intuitive response to the spices being employed by all the different ethnic groups in in California and Oregon. Yeah. Um, at what point did you decide that you had a formula for a separate company? So, so it kind of evolved over the time. So I came here in like 80s and my wife would be in 90s. So we weren't familiar with the salsa. So when we first came, um, when I first came, um, I was um, introduced to a simple pico de gallo by a you know, Spanish, Mexican co-worker. And I, I loved it, you know, and it, it reminded <laughs> me of home. And, right. you know, it has the very familiar taste, but not quite. Uh, but, but and then the way, you know, I, I just really hooked onto it. So I just, you know, then I started making it, you know, seemed pretty easy to make. And um, at the same time, you know, back of our mind, um, you know, uh, like Ripi can explain to you how we came about the Indian flavors. <laughs> Yeah, so you see, um, 
Yes, we have come from India, right, in early uh, 1990s. And there was not much Indian food around us. So, uh, yeah, so when you leave your home, you know, go that far part of the world, you not only leave your family and friends behind, you also leave your food behind, right? Right. Um, The flavors, the tastes you grew up with, your street food especially. So um, when we came here, we used to miss our street food a lot. And uh, we fell in love with salsa because it was so vibrant and it's, you know, this is just amazing um, for us to get introduced to that. So, um, and we started experimenting with it from spices from our kitchen. So, uh-huh. what the, yeah, so they started experimenting with those, you know, putting a little dash of that, dash of this from the kitchen cabinet, my kitchen pantry. <laughs> and, uh, you know, over the years it has evolved to what we call it Khalsa Salsa now, but it became very famous in our family and friend, uh, friends and family gathering, like to the point that no, <laughs> our, any gathering we go to or we have at home, uh-huh. it has to be Sukhdev Salsa. If we don't, that kind of a <laughs> not a good thing. No, it, so it, um, from our, that's from what you want. From our experience, and, and, and yeah, getting large, into the business, large, sorry. Go ahead, Peter. There are a large number of food trucks in Portland. It's it's con- considered the mother and father of all street food in the United States. Why, that why is did you think, why, why did you think you could take that on and compete with with so, people who so, are already established? So they're not making salsa. They're making you you know the traditional Indian you know. Puris and choles and and you know North Indian food and the, and the tandoori chickens and that kind of stuff. So they're like just the run of the mill Indian food. So this is not really Indian food. This is like a cross cultural, you know, like fusion of two okay. two flavors. That's what we have. Well, the way I see it is you kind of put a clearer focus on the ingredients and spices and salsa and traditional. Mexican salsa even by by using your Indian um, spices. Yeah, that is so true. It's more. It's it's more. Yes, that is so true. Uh, So our intention was to keep the salsa as it is, but just to enhance its flavor in Indian uh, with Indian spices, which are bold and bright. Right? Uh, Yeah, bold and bright. That's it. That that was it. So we did not want to take away anything from salsa or make it a chutney like thing. So salsa, um, the, it remains the same same kind of flavor, but it's just enhanced with the spices. And uh, talking about those uh, food trucks, Peter, those are the ones you know they serve their like a um, uh, meals like breakfast and lunch and dinner and whatnot. So what we have. Um, come up with uh, just the salsa which can go to, you know, any supermarket that people can buy, um, you know, uh, for snack idea, yeah. So if there was no competition with that or not even in our minds about, you know, doing a food truck kind of thing. No, we are not Pakistani. We are from India. Oh, no, I'm seeing, I'm sorry. My, my mistake. Yeah. That's well, okay. we, you can edit that out, rather. Yeah, I'll fi- I can fix that. Um, now, yeah. So, so, go ahead. 
Yeah, so, so the we, I told you that like literal meaning and you know, people who follow. But there's uh, the code of conduct is not just physical; it's also how you live your life. You know, you have to be, you know, obviously honest. You have to share with what uh, others that don't, don't have. The sharing is a huge part of our our faith. Um, so if you know, if I have you know, so I have to give out you know like ten percent of my time. Uh, my money, not to just the Sikh church or uh, Gurdwara or temple, but to anyone I choose to, uh, that's, you know, that is need. Uh, do you play cricket too? <laughs> I used to when I was in India. Didn't somebody who was a top cricketer become the, the prime minister or the president of... That's Pakistan. That's Pakistan. What was his name? I forget now. He's um, Yeah. What was his name? Yeah. Prime Minister. Um, uh, Imran Khan. Imran Khan. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm I'm trying to fill in the gaps here between when you started pottering around with adding Indian spices to traditional salsas to when you actually uh, realized that you had. A product line more than just you know an experiment um, yes how long yes. ago was that so about three plus years ago um, we like she mentioned this was really popular with friends and family and so one of the parties I couldn't make the salsa um, so I ran up to Costco and bought their salsa <laughs> And when when I tasted it, and you know people tasted it, you know they were kind of disappointed. And when I tasted it, I I said, you know people pe- pe- people deserve better. So, <laughs> I saw that coming. <laughs> yeah. So so that's why I kind of you know I don't have a business background, but that's when we kind of jumped in part time at that time. Mm-hmm. We were still working. Yeah. So I I like to add and so um. I knew this, this Tata is so amazing and he needs to bring it out and I kept, you know, convincing him for many, many years actually, you know, uh, you need to, you know, people deserve to know this amazing taste you have created and let's share this with the world but, you know, we were busy in our lives doing our day jobs as, you know, engineers and physicists so we did not have courage to, you know, drop everything and do it. But I think that instance when he brought the salsa home and everybody was looking for his salsa, I think yeah. that that kind of his aha moment that hey, um, maybe we should do it. So and I said finally he got it. <laughs> well, you know it takes a lot of guts though. I mean you're in a segment of the food industry that's highly competitive. I mean, there are a gazillion salsas out there. But, I mean, it takes a lot of guts, especially since you had no background in the industry, to, to, found, a com- to found a company and, and launch into it. I mean, how many products did you start with? Uh, we started with three flavors that we shared with you. We have a couple more in, in work. And, you know, um, Quite honestly, we um, didn't realize how tough this industry is before we jumped in. Okay, so you, you didn't, so, you weren't brave, you just were smart. 
<laughs> I was just ignorant. <laughs> so. You know, so I really anyway. appreciate I really appreciate him uh, jumping uh, with me in this you know uncharted waters. It was it was uh, it was it is still it's still a struggle. You know, uh, small businesses are always um, struggle and struggle. Tell, tell me what yeah. tell me what happened the day your you you said or your husband said I'm going to quit my job and make salsa. When, when, <laughs> it when, didn't when, didn't happen when, that way. So um, so 2018, the idea uh, actually I had the idea years ago, and actually I had the name in my head as well. Did but, you really? Uh, yeah, I did, and uh, he—he was not, you know, in, uh, as he as he told me, he's in, in engineer. He was busy with the job and didn't feel like that we can do this. But that moment, and also, um, we realized in our jobs, uh, things were not progressing the way we wanted to progress in life. Uh-huh. And I think that was a, a turning point for him as well. Let's let's start as a side hustle. So. We started part time in 2019, and uh, but the things have changed um, amazingly in a way that we are um, just looks like meant to do this. So what happened uh, in 2019? We worked our day jobs and we had this as a part time working nights and weekends, um, and then I lost my job in 2020. Aha! Uh-huh. Yeah, so. Then, um, then I was. This is the only thing I had in my, uh, you know, um, day radar to just keep doing it full time. And um, his company also starting saying that they they gonna shut down the uh, plant they have here, and uh, they did. And he lost his job in 2021. And uh, so you had some incentives there, not not really looked for or desired, but you had some incentives to to take the big risk, the big jump. That's right. So we had already started part-time, so these, by losing those jobs, jobs so this is our main focus, and, uh, um, yeah, we're going to just keep doing it. How many products um, do you actually have now, different products? Uh, I mean, so it's flavors. Yeah, so we have a fourth flavor coming up pretty soon. Uh, we have done some test marketing on that. It's, the flavor is called um, cilantro mint um, salsa. So the feedback we've been getting from the test has been amazing. Uh, so we should be launching that within next two months or so. Um, but what we also have something else in um uh, our pipeline. So, you know, the fresh salsas are great. Um, people love them. Um, but they have a limited geographical reach. Now, you cannot sell only that far because uh, the they have a sh- limited shelf life. These are refrigerated salsas. Right. So that, you know, has, a, you know, limited how far we can ship. And, then, and for that reason, most salsas are local. Uh, most fresh shots are the local. And so we came up with an innovative way that now we're coming, we're coming up with a shelf standalone um, salsa mix. It's a wet sauce in a pouch. Um, it's good for at least one year. But when customer gets it, he 
chops his, you know, cilantro and onions and tomatoes. He just puts that sauce in, and he gets instantly, you know, uh, uh, the fresh Indian fusion salsa like we sell in the stores. So that gives us flexibility to reach way beyond, you know, our Portland city limits. And so we are really excited about that. So it sounds like you're are, on another big threshold of a big advance here to me. Um, so how, instead of, I was going to ask you how do people get this salsa now, but I think that what you probably need to tell people is when um, this new format is going to hit the stores and uh, how you will be able to to get your wonderful salsas. Yeah, so um, right now, as we um, explained, we have uh, refrigerated fresh salsas, Mm -hmm. which are available locally um, in Oregon and Washington. And Mm -hmm. we are working our way towards California as well. And we also sell on online our website. But the the amazing thing which is coming up, and we are very excited to share that with you, uh, with our um, listeners, is that um, the the pouches that they just talked about. So those are actually innovative way of enjoying fresh salsa anywhere in the world. So those pouches will be shelf stable. So um, that means you can buy online anywhere, uh, uh, and. Uh, by by just chopping some produce, and uh, you can have the freshest Indian infusion salsa, which is kind of a gourmet salsa, really hard to make at home with so many ingredients and spices right. and whatnot, and know the ratio. So what we are giving is actually giving away our secret sauce and our recipe. So we will have a QR code on the pouch, which will uh, take a customer to a video which explains how to mix this um, sauce. Oh, really? Yeah, That's in the wonderful. produce. And, and they will, so what I'm thinking, this as a, uh, you know, the best of both worlds, the jar salsa, the, the, the flexibility or, you know, ease of jar salsa sitting in pantry and you can use any time, but as beautiful and as vibrant as fresh salsa, you, can, you just buy from your local stores. So that way, anybody in the world can have enjoy Indian fusion fresh salsa with our uh, secret sauce and with, with our recipe. Uh, let's, let's, before, before we close out, let's go back to my favorite black bean salsa. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I was barely allowed to touch that. You know? <laughs> I mean, I, uh, say that again? I was barely, barely allowed to touch that. That was his salsa. <laughs> I ate it with a spoon out of the jar. Less, yeah. Less, 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 than, less than a week. <laughs> yeah, your your favorite was black bean, right? Yes. Black bean, the black bean, was fantastic. So yeah. what, tell us, I mean, do they use black beans in Indian um, cooking? Yeah, yes, yes, some, a slight variation of that bean, but yes, we do. Okay. But not so in this way like we did here, yeah. Uh-huh. Um, and are you going to have the new format for that as well? Yes, for all the, the three, four flavors that we currently will have, we'll have the, uh, the, the pouch-type product for them. So, for example, 
when I have those samples ready, I can send you. When you make it, you will find the taste is exactly the same like I, when I sent you the fresh salsa. Oh, wow. Okay, that's amazing. How about before we close, let us, our listeners know your website so they can get all the updates as you progress with this. Yes, it's www.khalsasalsa.net. Khalsa is K-H-A-L-S-A, and then salsa, S-A-L-S-A, dot com. No, dot net. Dot net, so that's what our email is, too. Well, I wish you continued success. It was very exciting. It was very exciting uh, for us to, to discover it and to uh, taste it. And I hope that you have a, a really wonderful success story uh, to tell us next time we talk. Thank you so Thank much. You so much Can I ask you one thing before we go, Anne? Sure. So yes. uh, you found us on the uh, at the food show, the um, winter, uh, yeah, on, winter fancy we, food we, show, right? Yeah, we we cover we're on the media list and got all the, um, the, the releases and so forth, and uh, we we used to ca- cover the um, Eastern and New York fancy food show in person, but it's been not running. Um, it's going to run again this year in June, but um, it's been a while since it's been on. So, but and uh, the Sophie's well. going on. Pardon. We are going to be in New York as well this time. Oh, summer. good. Oh, good. Yeah, we're that's going to be wonderful. It's huge. Be prepared. It's, yeah, bring, it's bring not like... Comfor- bring your most comfortable shoes, whatever you do. Yeah. I know. Yeah. And I hope that that person's there with the, um, the foot massager. <laughs> <laughs> that would be very helpful. <laughs> Anyhow. Well, thank you both. And again, um, I hopefully see you in, in June in New York City. And hope you stay well. Thank you, Peter. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. For our final segment, um, there's not much about people moving, but uh, Chelsea Goucher certainly would like to move your um, your food adventures uh, into uh, the whole rising hot topic of seaweed, uh, nutritious, delicious, um, and uh, uh, sustainable. Um, her company that she founded from her native Alaska was foraged and found, and you'll you'll find uh, treasures in this ocean that you've never even anticipated, such as sea asparagus, and of course, the much beloved kelp. Yes, well, I'll tell you, Chelsea Goucher, um, is that Goucher? Or is yes, that Goucher. Goucher. Yes. Um, I, you, you hit the right people because I've been long a fan of, of kelp and of, um, and I've fallen in love with your um, sea asparagus pesto. <laughs> in fact, I almost cried when I finished that off. <laughs> so oh. well, I have it you know, by the spoonful almost every day. Hmm? Oh, it's a uh, proud favorite. Oh, is it? Okay. Well, it's very good. 
so um, Chelsea, Chelsea, you're you're in Alaska, but that's a big place. Where where are you in connection with anyone our listeners would recognize? The, the name of the name of the community where you live sounded kind of complicated, but if you can put it a dot on a map for us, that would be great. Yes. So where I'm located is Ketchikan, Alaska. So Ketchikan is in the southeastern region of the state. It's the Alexander Archipelago. So it's the okay. large group of islands that look like they're off the coast. Well, they are off the coast of British Columbia. Um, and so okay, Ketchikan's right. between six and 700 miles north of Seattle. So it's, um, it's the furthest south community in Alaska. It sounds beautiful there, is it? It is. It is beautiful. It is a temperate rainforest, so we have a ton of old-growth spruce and cedar trees. Um, Of course, being a rainforest, we get a ton of rain, but it makes it an incredibly abundant place as far as the flora and fauna. Um, It's a very, very cool place to live, and I was fortunate enough to to be born here and grow up here, so um, it's it's a very magical place to call home. So I'm I'm picturing that it's somewhere where the people who went to the Yukon in search of wealth started out in Alaska. Yes, that's very true. Um, Ketchikan's nickname is the first city, and that's often because when, you know, this old steamships were coming up from, you know, the Seattle area, Ketchikan was often where they first stopped off to resupply and and do all of that on their way up to the Klondike and in search of gold. And did you find any? Uh, well, I haven't found any. <laughs> <laughs> well, you did, you found something almost as good here. Um, let's, let's identify your company called Forage and Found. Um, yes. Tell us a little bit about that. I'm so happy somebody has just, has discovered the value of, of sea veggies. You know what I mean? They're just so wonderful oh my gosh. and abundant and... Yes, it's it's just the beginning, too. There's so much um, potential with kelps and seaweeds. Um, and it's really fun. Foraged and Found, actually, my business partner, Jennifer Brown, she started Foraged and Found, of course, just as a hobby. Um, she's from Southern California, and she made her way up to Southeast Alaska working as a chef on, um, you know, tourism yachts. And so oh. while she was working as a chef on the boat, she really – you know, enjoyed working with all of the lo- local um, foods here. You know, of course, everyone knows that Alaska is famous for its salmon and its halibut and its king crab and all of that. Yeah. Um, and there's also a ton of plants and seaweeds. And so she got really interested in it and started just kind of like experimenting with pickling and fermenting and different things like that with some of her friends. And every summer we have a big arts festival here, um, the Blueberry Arts Festival, and she put together a booth to sell some of her wares and got an amazing response from the local community about the products she'd created out of things like bull kelp and sea asparagus. And so she um, got together with some members of her family, and they, you know, put together a business plan. And she was like, I think I'm going to make a go of this and see if I can turn it into, you know, a viable business. And so she officially incorporated the business in 2018, and I joined the company in 2019. So her and I, we co-own it now. Um, we are business partners, and it has been an amazing, an amazing ride and an amazing adventure to, to you know, take a business that started off as just a hobby 
and start to really grow it and expand it and, you know, get to share, like, this bounty of Southeast Alaska with people from all over the country and hopefully someday all over the world. And so Forage and Found Now, we primarily, we, well, we make shelf-stable food products. We have a line of salsas, pickles, uh, pesto, and pasta sauces, and they're all made with wild-harvested Alaskan sea plants like sea asparagus and the bull kelp, like I mentioned before. Yeah. You know, I I always uh, we did some work with um the uh, a um a, I don't know what you call him um in in Maine and and it was um uh, Maine um wild Maine kelp or no it was more than mm. kelp I mean we had he sent me um, a whole bunch a whole like a whole crate practically full of, of dried um, sea weed and it was it was fabulous i mean he said he has a cookbook out with recipes you might want to think about that one too oh yes yeah we do actually on our website um we do have a website for foraged and found where you can buy all of our products online and have them shipped to you anywhere in the united states um and on that website we have a whole page just dedicated to recipes with our products so someday it would be very fun to make an actual cookbook, but one thing at a time. <laughs> I have no doubt. Well, he's very spiritual, and so is his partner. Um, uh-huh. and, and Hold they, on a minute. Let, let's, before we forget, let's spell out Forged and Found, the URL, just so that people don't, don't have to go hunting around for it. Okay. It's, uh, it's HTTPS yes. colon forward slash forward slash foraged, F-O-R-A-G-E-D-N-F-O-U-N-D dot com. Got it. Okay, thank you for that. Yeah, absolutely. I'm just writing it down. Found. Um, well, he had a great variety of different seaweeds that he sent me. And, and um, I mean, there were so many kinds, but... Um, I, I think that was all wild. No, is yours all because foraged? Is yours all wild as well, or do you um, do you actually plant it or whatever? So right now, what we're using is wild harvested um, bullwhip kelp, which is actually a brown algae that grows very fast here in Alaska, and it's a super it's a it's a unique seaweed because it has a very hardy. Um, hearty, crunchy consistency to it. It pickles very well, like a cucumber would. Um, and it's high in protein, which is very cool, as like a vegan source of protein. And it also mm-hmm. is high in trace um, nutrients like magnesium and iodine. Right. And so primarily we use that. And right now we are wild harvesting it. We work with the Alaska Department of Fish and Game, and they permit all of our harvests and kind of, you know, dictate where we can harvest and how much from any given bed. But as we grow the oh, business, yeah. we, are, we are very interested in working with kelp farmers. So in southeast Alaska, kelp and seaweed farming is a, a very important up-and-coming industry. Um, you know, the communities, the people that live here, the, the state and local governments are very supportive of the growth in the mariculture industry. So my business partner and I, we're excited to see the farmers really develop their techniques and become more consistent in their practices because as they do, eventually we would really like to to buy kelp from them 
and support their businesses. Now, you mentioned you, you stuck a word in the Mary culture. Did I hear that correctly? Yeah. Yes, Man, yeah, like Mary is kind of See. the uh, catch-all term for um, kelp farming, seaweed farming, that sort of thing. Okay. So somebody, so somebody doing that in, in Maine would call it the same thing, mariculture? You know, I, I think so. <laughs> I know in Alaska, you know, in, in economic development circles, that's what we call it is mariculture. And, okay. um, you know, I've, I've heard it called the same other places as well. Now, do you, do you deal primarily in kelp and uh, sea asparagus? Because there, there were so many varieties in this package I got from Maine. Some of them were red seaweed and uh, different sh- sizes of leaves and shapes and things like that. Yeah, I mean, there, you know, there's an abundance of edibles here in Alaska, both on land and sea, from, you know, berries, wild mushrooms, and then in the sea there's other oh, things wow. like sea lettuce, popweed, all kinds of things. Right now we're, we are just focusing on the bull kelp and the sea asparagus, but there's, like, unlimited potential. <laughs> oh, so you, you could know, go on and on with this, huh? expanding, huh? I mean, yeah, theoretically, you know, if, if it makes sense, if, if the population supports it, you know, obviously we are very um, aware of sustainability in everything we do. We want to make sure that we are part of the ecosystem and not, you know, leaving a huge, a huge impact on it. And so we're mindful of that, but there's, there's a lot of potential. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, that, I, that was going to be my next uh, exploration is uh, if everybody catches on to how wonderful this seaweed stuff is, how are you going to keep from its being over-farmed like, like fish and, and everything else that we have as a natural resource? Well, the unique thing about kelp farming is it is a very regenerative type of farming. So kelp farmers, they don't require almost any – I mean, they have to obviously put in – um, a lot of capital investment for the infrastructure, like the float and buoy systems, that sort of thing. But the kelp farming itself, it doesn't require any, you know, you don't have to use any enhancements like fertilizers or pesticides or anything like that. And the kelp, as it grows, actually helps take carbon out of the ocean and it also helps to deacidify the ocean. So kelp yeah, farming in good and of thing. itself is... Yes, yeah, that's it's very, a very regenerative. Good thing. Yeah. Yeah, and so an, I, I was going to ask a naive question, like, how how do you actually farm it? You get out there. And so, you, get, you get out there in a boat. Well, I'm not a kelp farmer, so I don't know all the details. But from what I okay. understand and what I've seen of pictures, usually it involves some kind of a system where you know, in a permitted area, in a in a bay or cove. Um, they'll set up a network of, like, rope and float systems, and right. then uh, on the rope they'll, you know, inoculate with, like, the, the spores or the seeds of the different kelps and algaes, and then they'll grow from there okay. um, off the different right. rope systems. But there is still a lot of experimentation to be done in that industry um, as far as really figuring out what the best techniques are to get the kelp to grow and be the most healthy that it can be. So like I said, I'm excited to see how that all develops as well because, I, I, you know, my hope is that our business can grow alongside these other businesses. 
um, which, which is important and it's meaningful to me as a Southeast Alaskan because, you know, here in Alaska we don't, um, you know, it can be a struggle sometimes to, to find jobs and industries that are sustainable and that can really keep people going without, you know, causing a huge amount of damage. You know, we used to be um, a region very oriented on uh, the timber industry, which oh, yeah. timber is great. I have no problem with cutting trees. We have to. I mean, it, we have to. But they were cutting old growth timber here and turning it into pulp for paper making and things like that. And so, you uh-huh. know, maybe that wasn't the wisest, the wisest use of that resource. So um, it, it's fun to be part of something that's growing and that people are excited about and that could really possibly be something that works um, both for the people that live here and, you know, doesn't do too much harm to the environment. And if anything, might actually enhance it because it is such a regenerative type of farming. Yeah, but it it regenerates with a little help, though. I mean, you have to uh, seed things and whatnot. Oh, yes, yes. And uh, your product comes in jars, right? It does come in jars, yes. Jars, jars it's prepared on. as opposed to, I mean, what we got from um, the guy in Maine was this, I told you, a whole crate full of dried seaweed. Yeah, yeah ours are all, are all, like, fully finished products. Like I said, my business partner, she was a chef on these yachts, so she has an impeccable palate. She has great taste. And if I do say so myself, all of our products are very delicious. <laughs> we have... Um, <laughs> We have four flavors of salsa, we have three flavors of pickle, and then we have the sea asparagus pesto, which is a very, like, bright, um, citrusy, just really good pesto. And then we have two pasta sauces, a marinara and a spicy arriata. And And we had the arrabbiata, and and Peter liked it a lot, and he's fussy about his uh, pasta sauces. Yes, that's always the test. Is when you can get a fussy a fussy cook to like our products. That's when we know we're onto something. And so, um, I do I do feel like my partner really came up with um, some very good recipes. So I'm I'm proud to to share those with people. Yeah, well, you should be. Yeah, um, and and we've said that there are all these health benefits, nutrition. Um, it's a natural source of so many things. Um, you know, it's just healthier. It feels healthier eating, actually, to tell you the truth. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, no. we are. We're, you know, we're very mindful, too, with the other ingredients we use. We want to use, like, high-quality ingredients. We're really moving. Most of what we put into our products are all organic. We're not 100% there yet, but we're moving in that direction. And so it's important to us that not just not just the wild-harvested ingredients, but all of the ingredients we use are you know, from a good source and an ethical source um, and something that ultimately is going to exactly make people feel good when they eat it. I mean, that's, that's what food is all about. It's, it's fueling the body, and we want to be part of that. Now, uh, tell me about um, who, who do you see as your customer and who do you market to? Well, I mean, our customer really, um, you know, it's a wide range of people. I think that you know, consumers increasingly are interested in, you know, plant-based alternatives. They're interested in things that are ethically sourced, things that are locally sourced, um, things that, you know, have a nutritional benefit. I mean, that is one of the nice things is, you know, you open a jar of one of our salsas 
And unlike many other salsas, you're getting a little bit of protein, you're getting some iodine, you're getting some magnesium, you're getting some things that you definitely wouldn't get out of any other kind of salsa. Um, and, you know, we don't compromise on the flavor. So it's nice that you can open something up, eat it, enjoy it, it tastes good, and at the same time you're getting a little bit of a bonus with these nutrients. And so yeah, I think you, our you consumers really the bells. are people. <laughs> you yeah. ring all the bells as far as it sounds, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you should you should note that the be- while while Anne and Chelsea were talking, the the doorbell rang, so I'm a, I'm a little breathless because I did 48 steps down and 48 steps back up. Oh, I didn't <laughs> even hear it. What I didn't hear was it was the wine merchant. <laughs> oh, okay, that's heavy stuff. Yeah, um, yeah, we we it's, it's sort of Christmas here every day. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, um, so so you haven't identified. I mean, you think that the market is is like across the board for all these things that that are, are targeted now in the in the consumer um, with sustainability, health, uh, flavor, uh, accessibility. Uh, yeah, that, yeah. Okay, absolutely. Do you, do you um? I mean, you have on your website, you have recipes and stuff. Do you do any ancillary activities to promote the products? Oh, yes, we do. I mean, we have, you know, you can find us on on Instagram and on Facebook and LinkedIn. So we do all the social media. And then this year we participated in our first major trade show. We had a booth at, um, we're part of the Specialty Food Association, which is a, a national. Oh, you did the Fancy Food Show in, in the. We in the, did. Yeah, we did it in Las Vegas in February. And that was that's so That's probably fun how I found you, right? Probably. 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 Yeah. <laughs> a lot's happened between now and then, but probably. Yeah. Um, the Fancy Food Show. And that was so fun, you know, because it's been, it's been a challenge, um, you know, growing a business in in the times that we're living in because, you know, grocery buyers have been, you know, much more conservative because there's so much uncertainty in the markets and there hasn't been as much um, opportunity to sample. And that's the thing is sampling our products is really important because, you know, there's a lot of people that they hear the word kelp and they instantly – they have a a negative connotation, which, which is understandable, you know, but then why, you get why would try. they have a negative connotation for kelp? I would, well, I would think. I mean, why does the human brain work as it does? I don't know. I mean, <laughs> but, you know, maybe they tried something. They tried some seaweed when they were a kid, and it tasted fishy to them or something, you know. And so then mm-hmm. they just they write it off. And um, but if you try some of our stuff, you know, nine times out of ten, people are like, "Wow, this is really good." And so it was fun to go to the fancy food show and get to sample our products, and we got a really good reception. Um, and it was just, it was really enjoyable. So we're definitely looking forward to doing that again next year. Right. And then my business well, they have, partner and they I have one in New York in um, June, I think it is this year. That's yes. the one we usually go to. Actually, yes. Yeah, and I've heard that was wonderful as well. Yeah. Oh, it's huge. Absolutely huge. There's no way you can actually uh, um, go get through the whole show. <laughs> There's no way. <laughs> yeah. But, well, listen, um, it's been 
a revelation that that finally people are discovering something I've been supportive of for a long time, which is a well, you're ahead of your time. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I just happen to like seaweed. <laughs> so, um, and and I really think that you have like a an ever expanding market in front of you because it's hardly been touched. And um, yeah, so so I, I'm glad you're seeing some success. And I wish you have you, you to have continued success and, and keep us posted as to what new directions you take and so forth. Again, listeners, we will definitely do that. Yeah, it's Foraged and Found is the uh, company. Uh, we're talking yes. to partner Chelsea Goucher, and, and and you're going to be really kind of amazed at how versatile this product line is. Um, don't forget another week for us and we hope that we've introduced you to some new possibilities in your food adventures and um, who knows what we'll talk about next week but join us please and until then bye bye <laughs>